Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, this podcast episode is brought to you by our sponsor, St. Gaster. So are you looking at getting your product into the hands of the right people, the people that are going to absolutely love it? Did you know that podcast advertising is literally 4.4 times more effective than the traditional display type of advertising? So if you're looking at really using podcast advertising, you may want to connect with Sencaster. So they've created this thing. It's called the Sencaster Podcast Marketplace, where you can connect as a brand or a company with the right type of creators. And again, you know, via Sencaster, you can connect with people like myself, where essentially we are putting ads of the brands and the companies that we absolutely love. So again, if you are interested in doing this, just go to sen.ai forward slash dealmakers1, and that is a number one. And again, the team at Sencaster will be able to guide you in the right direction. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really cool founder. I think it's going to be one of those founders that we're really going to be getting inspired with. I mean, he's uh, lived all over the world. He's like a citizen of the world by now. Uh, and he's been building now a really interesting company. So we're going to be learning about building, scaling, financing, and you name it. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Florian Wegner. Welcome to the show. Hi, Alejandro. Thank you for having me. So, originally born in Berlin, but you grew up in uh, Freiburg. So, um, how was life growing up? Give us a walk through memory lane. Yeah, grew up in Freiburg, which is uh, a town of, uh, you know, 200,000 people in the southwest of Germany, very close to Switzerland and France. And it's a city that's dominated by students. So, there are roughly 40,000 students from all over the world. And while it's a small city, you feel like you're being exposed to different cultures uh, having said that, I uh, decided at a young age of 10 years to join a French school. Um, my parents are whole German, so they asked me, why on earth are you, you joining a French school? And I, 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 I was just super interested into learning more about uh, another culture and a country that was so close to from where we lived at the time. Now, you know, you just reminded me of something because I remember when I was doing my, my law school uh, back in Spain, there was a gap year where you could take, it was called the Erasmus. And most of my classmates, they would go to Freiburg to spend the year there. In your case, Florian, you know, now going back to your uh, story here, uh, you did, you know, basically, you were really into traveling. I mean, you've been in Seattle, in New York. So where do you get that uh, excitement for testing new waters? A very interesting question. I grew up in a typical middle house uh, household in Germany. My, my father is a doctor. My, my mother is a teacher. Doesn't mean you're a multimillionaire like in the U.S. <laughs> and uh, it just meant that uh, education always came first at home. And I, I think through going from you know, one country to another country, it gave me the possibility to you know, study in different cities. And as you said, I, I studied in Freiburg, in Frankfurt, in New York, in Toronto, uh, later on in Madrid and Spain. And um, I really enjoyed that. But uh, uh, at the same time, I think there's some 
German uh, stubbornness in me. So, so I never took the Erasmus year. I always wanted to be the first and uh, basically end, uh, you know, the, the school as early as possible. And so really just working there and studying there was a way for me to experience new countries and new cultures. And I still enjoy this very much. And luckily, now that we have kids uh, who were born in Germany and who currently live in Boston, Massachusetts, they, they're also going to an international school. Uh, also, my wife uh, is German, but grew up in Santiago de Chile. And so we have a lot of languages. Now, yeah. now in, in this case for you, you know, after, after school, you did the uh, civilian work where you have to do one year. And you were driving an ambulance. You know, it's interesting how you ended up from driving an ambulance to all of a sudden becoming a doctor. I mean, quite, a, quite, quite an interesting transition, I guess, from, from driving the ambulance, because to a certain degree, I find that being the founder of a hyper-growth company is the same thing as driving an ambulance. You know, you're, you're dealing with the unknown. You're dealing with the high intensity and with the anxiety of all the events that are in front of you. So how, how was that experience for you? And how do you think that shaped up your personality? So I think um, being a paramedic or driving an ambulance at that time was an option to learn about a certain part of medicine. I, I always had the dream of becoming a doctor that would uh, do some heart surgery on, on patients. And obviously at that age of 19, 20, you don't really have a clue if you really want to become a doctor. And so this was the first step for me to learning about this. Now, you know, again, uh, you, you go through training, you're in very severe uh, situations, uh, sometimes you're unfortunately too late. That's the job of a paramedic. But um, the point is uh, that there are quite a few, I would say, trades that, that help you being an entrepreneur. So for an example, um, you know, also being later a doctor, most patients don't come to you and say, this is the disease I have. Please treat me. In fact, it's the opposite. Usually you have to ask a lot of questions either as a paramedic or a doctor, to find out what is the current situation, what is the state uh, of, of you know, the company, the market, uh, the customer's mind or your employee's mind. And you only get there through asking the right question. And then here's the second thing. No one wants a treatment. So you have to convince them that, uh, you know, COVID uh, can be helped. You can, can get some vaccination and some people don't want the vaccination. And that is the same for any treatment. And so I think while becoming a doctor and uh, driving the ambulance sounds like this has nothing to do with starting a company. There are certain things that I can still benefit from. And, and now regarding the craziness, I absolutely love turning on the, the machine and the blue lights and every car would go to the right and to the left and you would just go through it. So there is a certain thrill. And uh, it's funny because um, now that I'm a full-blown entrepreneur and we're, we're quite having a ride here, I really closely follow Formula One, which I had never been interested in. But there is something about speed, about giving your best performance in the team. And, and so, so I'm a little addicted about uh, these topics. And uh, yeah. Well, I mean, especially being able to drive at maximum speeds without getting a ticket. You know, you liking Formula One, you know, that sounds uh, like a good combo. But in your case, I mean, you ended up becoming a doctor. Uh, and at 27 years of age, you were already on top of the world. I mean, there were not a lot of people, you know, at that same age, you know, performing the type of procedures that you were doing. So, so how come do you decide to all of a sudden, you know, uh, put everything aside and, and make a shift in your, in your professional career? You know, I, 
I had thought that I would want to lead a department of cardiology in Germany. That was my plan originally. And I was blessed and honored to be working with, you know, uh, very well-known people. As you said, globally, my, my doctor father, as we call it in Germany, had been trained at MGH here in Boston, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And um, while I was very fast and young, as you said, at uh, sort of taking some of those steps towards uh, such a career, uh, at the same time, I felt pretty lonely. Uh, there were moments where I felt like I'm, I'm all alone. There's not a team. Uh, I have to do this. Uh, in the middle of the night, I would write a paper. Next morning, while I hadn't slept, I would uh, perform a procedure. And, you know, uh, these are sort of procedures that if they go wrong, they really go wrong. And um, I think this, this to a certain um, extent, also motivated me. I mean, I liked it and I loved it. And at the same time, I started not so liking it uh, that much anymore. But um, I think what ultimately drove my decision to leave the hospital was the, the fact that uh, for an academic career and, uh, you know, with this uh, ambition, uh, the next 10, 12 years seemed to be very clear to me. And, and I sometimes call this, it, it felt like being in a, in a long, dark tunnel. And at the end is sort of the light of, of becoming this head of a uh, department. And at some point I said, hey, wait a minute. I'm not even certain that I'm going to enjoy the next 10, 12 years. I'm not even certain if the light's going to be that bright on the other side. And, and so, um, you know, I discussed this at home. My, my, my younger brother is uh, someone who had always studied uh, economics and, and, you know, uh, became an eye banker and started a private equity fund and stuff like that. And so he took the time to sit down with this, this sort of say, older brother and said, listen, uh, you want to find out what you want to do. There are other things that you could do out there. And so ultimately, I started working with uh, a major consultancy. In my case, was uh, Boston Consulting Group. And I actually then worked with them for six years, always between Big Pharma, MedTech, Biotech, et cetera. And uh, they also sponsored my, my MBA. And so I went to your hometown, Madrid, uh, and, and basically studied at the Instituto de Empresa, i.e. business school, which is the leading entrepreneurial school in Europe. And so, yeah, overnight, I was surrounded by, sort of say, crazy entrepreneurs. Every third person on my class had already started their own company. And I got really inspired by this. And at some point, um, basically, I, I think that, that laid the foundation for me to then later start Sugino. Now, now, obviously, in this case, you were surrounded by entrepreneurs. It was just a matter of time. But why would you say that it took you three and a half years to really go at it? Yeah, great, great point. So at that time, I was on fire. After my MBA at IE Business School, I was on fire to basically start something new. Uh, first of all, you have to go back to BCG for two years. That's part of it. So I... And then, and then after that, uh, the day basically I had the chance to leave uh, uh, the firm, I actually joined one of the leading biotech companies. And I, I think um, my role at, at uh, Kyogen um, was a role that was not well-defined when I joined. The, the, the CEO had interviewed me among other people and, and basically said, listen, you're a smart guy, you have an impressive career so far, we want to hire you. And, and and, and to a certain extent, it was unclear what I was going to do. And so when I started with them, I found out that they had just let go several hundred salespeople in the biotech world. So now we're in the life science research uh, field, very specific industry that most people had never heard about before, uh, you know, COVID hit. And in this world, um, 
on one side, uh, there's so much innovation. There's so much fantastic things going on. The brightest minds are, uh, are working in, in, in this industry and uh, developing a cure for cancer, food safety, animal health. Uh, you know, um, they, they fight uh, infectious diseases, etc. And in and, and, and this world, there are though other problems that, that scientists uh, uh, basically face. And one of them is that it's a super fragmented market. There are thousands of suppliers and there's no um, Amazon of life science. And so at that time at Kaijan, I had this idea of building one, you know, e-commerce web shop for this one manufacturer in this industry, which worked out well. And, you know, after, you know, one year asking for it, they, they gave me a big uh, funding and uh, I hired around 100 people. We went live for this one manufacturer in 16 countries and in year three, we generated 400 million of revenues, which was roughly a third of the revenues of Kyogen at that time globally. And, and so for me, I was just uh, so surprised by the need we saw in the lab. And on the other side, the uh, fast growth we had gone through uh, using digital channels. And so we started Sugino, which is uh, the leading B2B marketplace today in life science, which... Uh, basically is vertically integrated into a purchasing software. And I'm happy to speak more about this, but I think it took me a little bit uh, of while, a while to get there. And looking back, I someone once said, hey, first you were an entrepreneur, now you're an entrepreneur. So, so I think uh, I, it took me a few steps. <laughs> so uh, at what point do you realize it's time to do it? The moment that you see the opportunity and someone tells you, you should not do that. You, you can't do this. That is probably a pattern I've seen in my life. You asked me about some of the stations. Every time I hear this, I, I just decide immediately, uh, I'm going to prove to you that I can do this. And, and, and then uh, I put all my energy into this. So then with Sajino, what's the, um, what's the business model? How do you guys are making money? So on one side, we help biotech and pharma companies. Uh, we help their scientists to navigate through, you know, 45 million products SKUs that we have on the website. We are by far the largest catalog in the industry. And we help them to shorten their time to identify and prepare the next experiment that they want to run. We're speaking here preclinical. So uh, people basically need uh, cooking recipes. They need uh, the ingredients for the meal, if I may say so. And we at Sigino can basically offer you all of the ingredients and some of the recipes. And that saves them half a day to a day every week. That is very, very powerful. And so this is how we enable scientists to do better research faster. This is how we actually help them to, to save costs and, and ultimately uh, you know, achieve scientific milestones faster. So, so these companies pay us. Uh, to answer your question, they pass a certain uh, fee to, to gain access to, to the platform. And then on the other side, we have uh, a few thousand uh, suppliers by now on the platform, and they pay us because we sell their products. And, and so, so we are in, uh, in a position where we actually monetize on both sides of the marketplace. Uh, in, in, you know, from my perspective, I, I speak to investors every day, I spoke to two this morning. Um, I think one, uh, uh, you know, one thing you want to look out for being an investor, if you invest into a marketplace is, do they actually monetize on both sides of the platform? And I'm not thinking about the revenues for the platform. I'm rather thinking, do actually people, are they willing? 
the users on both sides of the platform to pay for those services. And that, to me, is a clear criteria for there is a real need as a real product market. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, when you're building a marketplace, it's like uh, launching two companies, right? So you have like two different areas that you need to build and typically, you know, you got the supply demand or the chicken and the egg. I mean, I remember on, on previous marketplace that, 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 that I built, I really just wanted to shoot the chicken and step on the egg, you know, because it's very frustrating to really get it right. But in, in, in your guys' case, how did you really think about building the marketplace and which was the weakest side of the equation that you needed to get it right, to get right in order for the marketplace to really work and have the right type of network effects? Yeah, great question. So in the life science research industry, the power... Uh, in these uh, deals is with the suppliers. It's not with the scientists. It's not the scientists who drive the industry forward. It's rather the suppliers. And that is driven by non-transparency. And, and so uh, in the fragmentation of the market, it's, uh, it takes them, the, the users, the scientists, hours to identify the right product and compare it. They actually build Excel spreadsheets from different websites. And then there are thousands of suppliers who don't even have websites. Now, in this setup, why would the supplies change this world? There's no way they're going to change it if you don't put them under pressure. And so what, what, what we, how we started this, and this was our, our initial hypothesis back in uh, yeah, several years ago, and I think by now we, we have proven this, is we are actually creating demand. And, and this, is, this is how we do it. And then the supply follows the demand. Now, what that means is in the beginning, we were pretty bold. On day one, we said we are the everything store of life science, even though we just had a few hundred products and not the 40 million that we have by now. And there were first, uh, you know, academic institutions, initial biotechs, where the people said, hey, listen, um, even if this is not perfect yet, we're also all entrepreneurs in this industry and it will never stop. We, we always do science. So we're all entrepreneurs. Uh, you know, we'll start working with you guys. If we like it, we'll continue. 
If not, you need to find something else. But it also illustrates how big the pain is that people are open to nearly anything in the beginning. And so, so what we built over the years is then, um, you know, that, that system that helps them find these products, navigate through it. And, and so really, um, to me, the, the, the transformation that we are part of in this industry is uh, coming from the end user in our case. And in this case, I mean, building a marketplace, it costs money. I mean, just to get things and the wheels in motion, it, it takes capital. So how did you guys go about capitalizing the business? Yeah, so, you know, um, obviously we're we're still not profitable. We're, we're still venture capital backed. Uh, we're very blessed that we have, uh, you know, very smart investors on board who understand how to build very large companies. Uh, uh, the last, uh, uh, you know, round was led by General Catalyst. Um, Larry Barnes is on our board. He has throughout his career proven that he knows where money is and has built several, you know, multi-billion dollar companies over the course of the last 20 years or so. And and so um, I, I think you need to write to find the right investor. There needs to be some chemistry. There needs to be uh, some parts where you clearly align on, where you want to take the company, what is the vision. We don't always agree on how to get there. I think that's normal. That's healthy. And, um, you know, in the last round, uh, again, which was led by GC, uh, a co-investor was uh, Kaiser Permanente. So I usually don't tell that, um, but but Kaiser Permanente is uh, a vertically integrated healthcare provider here in the U.S. It's one of the largest one. It's super impressive. They, I think they have 100,000 doctors employed themselves. So they're not just in insurance. They have hospitals. They have diagnostic uh, uh, test centers, et cetera. And when we met with Kaiser, they quickly understood the power of what we're doing. And uh, there's uh, absolutely no... Um, conflict of interest because uh, they will not ever sell anything on the platform. So we've we never allowed suppliers to invest into Sugino because I feel there is a certain risk that uh, we would not be really objective anymore or neutral. Um, and at the other side, I think there's a potential that they could become a very large customer for us over time. So, so it's a really great setup. Um, and yeah, and we still have a few investors that initially, you know, Seed Series A investors uh, back from Europe. Um, they still invest, by the way, in every round because um, uh, they are very excited about where we're taking the company. The last round was a 60 million round uh, that we closed last year. And in total, how much capital have you guys raised? Altogether, we are close to 100 million. Um, that includes, though, uh, you know, equity and, and debt. And in, in, in this case, I mean, there's probably a bunch of people that are listening to us right now. And they're probably wondering, like, when you're building a marketplace, what do investors really look for? I mean, what, what has been your experience when raising money and, 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 and people looking under the hood for, for what was going on in the marketplace? Mm -hmm. So it's a mix of things. Uh, in my experience, uh, people want to see a bold vision. They want to understand from a mission perspective, is that something we want to, you know, um, support? So, so for an example, in our case... Um, as I said before, we're helping wonderful people to make the, the world a better place, right? Uh, a healthier place. So that usually resonates strongly with them. Uh, I think, uh, namely, the industry we're in was an industry that just before COVID, I sometimes had a hard time to explain to tech investors because they had never heard about it. That has completely changed over the course of the last two years. 
people uh, read about our customers, they read about the Moderners of the world, the BioNTechs, the et cetera, et cetera. And uh, they discuss this at home. And probably we're all a little tired of this by now, but, but they, they, they do remember this. And uh, even if you don't understand this industry, you know someone just made some money in COVID, right? And so when we say, these are our end customers, they don't really have a problem paying for our software. No one ever questions that. So market is a part. And then more specifically, when you look at the marketplace, I think they really want to understand what is the value proposition for both sides. Is there one? In our case, yes. Um, they want to understand is there traction? In our case, yes. They want to understand are these guys from a mindset, do they understand how painful scaling uh, will be? And um, you know, I've, I've done quite a few jobs and uh, every job has been fun, but also painful. So I'm really looking forward to continuing uh, this, this ride with Sagino. And with Sagino, I mean, for the people that are listening to get an idea on the scope and size, I mean, anything that you could share in terms of like number of employees or anything else? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to, to speak about some of the metrics. So we have roughly uh, nearly 300 people working for us by now. We have uh, uh, basically a mix of internal and external people. Uh, we, ha we, we have, you know, um, people in Berlin. Um, I, I'd say we have around 60 people or so in Berlin. We have around 70 or so here in Boston. I think we, we had 25 last week in San Francisco. I, I need to look every week because we're growing fast. And I think we started having people, especially on in, in the engineering side in India, but, but we also have a few customer service uh, sort of outsourced people who are in uh, either Eastern Germany and some of them in Asia by now. So and why are we doing this? Because we want to be there seven days per week, 24 hours per, per day. And, and we are offering uh, this service, uh, which is, which is uh, pretty much outstanding in our industry. So when you have multiple offices too, I mean, every office has its own culture to a certain degree. So how do you go about it so that the culture is not so different from the culture that you, as the founder, uh, really you know, influenced everyone by? How do, you, how do you do it so that it doesn't derail so much from the actual culture? So a um, few points. I think on one side, there is by now a certain Sagino culture. And that is not a culture that my co-founder David or I sort of wrote down and said, these are our values and this is how we're going to do this. It's really, we did the opposite. So a few years back, this is two and a half years back or so, um, we internally interviewed all of the employees at that time. And we basically let them participate in how do you define values that you feel we have at Sagino that make us unique? What are the things you like? What are the things you don't like? And um, I think we came up with a list of nine or 11 things that everyone feels this is the culture. We sort of decreased this to five points. Um, and and uh, I couldn't have written it better. That's exactly how I would have described this as well. Now, how do you maintain that culture? I once learned the moment that you don't hire uh, directly everyone anymore, which is so long not the case anymore, as you can imagine. Uh, the culture might change. I would say, yes, luckily it's changing. We have, you know, 60-something nationalities. We have so many languages in this company. We're, we are really a diverse uh, group of people who enjoy working with each other. And so I, I think um, it is good that um, there are certain, um, how should I say, there are certain things we have in common, the mission, we want to change um, the world we're in. But then... Everyone does it in a little bit different way. 
And yes, sometimes, uh, you know, that makes it a little more complicated and you have to probably over communicate. But at the same time, I'm completely convinced that this diversity, these people with different backgrounds, different opinions, different ways, how they want to do certain things makes us stronger. And, and, and yes, then, then there are all these programs, uh, you know, where we, I don't know, walk together, where we, uh, we had a town hall meeting in, in, in Berlin, San Francisco and Boston at the same point in time this week. Uh, people saw each other via video. And at the same time, you were surrounded by people in person. Uh, there were presentations, there were discussion, there were work meetings, but there was also fun, you know. And, and so uh, I would say, yes, we have achieved that there is a strong Sugino culture, no matter what country we're in. And it's uh, maybe in certain nuances a little different, as you said, but overall, it's, it feels the same. And um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's an honor to be working with all of these people. So I imagine you go to sleep tonight, Florian, and you wake up in a world five years later. You wake up in a world where the vision of uh, the company is fully realized. What does that world look like? Sagino so will not be a marketplace. It will be... The, the tool that scientists around the globe open on a Monday morning when they go to the lab and uh, where they start preparing the next experiment. Um, scientists have in common that they all work in so-called workflows. There's one step after the other. Again, to me, this is a little bit like a, um, a chef in the kitchen who has a certain recipe with certain steps and ingredients. And currently, we just help them to sort of order those products and then we ensure that, you know, in times of supply chain challenges because of COVID and Brexit and, and the war in Ukraine, et cetera, uh, that they get the product. And that, that makes us very unique against everyone else. Now, tomorrow, we should also be upstream and downstream in this uh, daily workflow of the scientists be present. And we should help them to plan really the next experiment even better. We should maybe help them not only to order that stuff, but conduct the experiment and later on analyze it and, and sort of uh, share the data with other people. I think another aspect that I would uh, like us to develop even further is the community aspect of Sagino. Now, you should know that researchers are very high IQ. Sometimes they're a little shy to basically speak within uh, or across uh, certain labs. They're, they're sometimes, uh, even from a legal perspective, uh, when they're working on groundbreaking next blockbusters, they're not allowed to share a lot of their daily work with uh, people from another company, right? I mean, there's so much money involved. But there are ways how these people could interact through our platform. We have first uh, sort of uh, steps of that in the platform embedded, but there's so much more we could do. And this is something where um, I think the... Uh, the, the, the scientist uh, can be strengthened. Now, there are other aspects where we work with the CFOs and the purchasing teams. And I think there, we, we just help them gain transparency on spend. That's all there. I think um, there will be more sort of commercial programs that they're interested in. You know, um, I don't know, buy now, pay later. So we don't have that yet, but we'll definitely have this. And, you know, uh, if not next year, the year after that. And, and I think um, when you really go on the other side of the marketplace to the supplier side, there's so much where we could even strengthen the supplies more. So, so imagine that. In our world, um, there are, there's Big Pharma. Big Pharma uh, acquires companies and knowledge 
basically their extended workbench is the biotech industry, if I may say so. And, you know, we work with these two customer segments. We have more and more big pharma companies, but we're also working with these hundreds of, of, of biotechs. And I think what, what is really exciting is that we could help uh, um, the suppliers who acquire each other, we, we could help them to bring their products to market faster. So in our industry, without a marketplace, after an acquisition, it usually takes nine months or so to really bring the product to, uh, of the company that you just acquired to the end customer. With us, I mean, we can do this tomorrow, right? You give us the product data, we sell it, you ship it. And so, 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 so there, there, there are, um, I would say there's this overall theme of, of the marketplace that will still be present and this will be the core, but there are additional uh, services that we're going to offer. Now, imagine that I put you into a time machine, Florian, and I bring you back in time. And I bring you back to a moment where you have the opportunity of having a chat with that younger self, with that younger Florian, perhaps with that younger Florian that, you know, has an idea of maybe like going at it and starting a business, but not sure yet uh, of what's in front of him. And you have the opportunity of, of giving that younger Florian one piece of advice before launching a business? What would that be and why, given what you know now? Hmm. I would say trust 100% your gut feeling and execute on that and then uh, check the data later to improve. And while I'm saying this, I still sometimes am not strong enough to do that. And then usually a few months later, I'm angry with myself. I'm like, why haven't we changed this earlier? I saw this coming. Did we have the data? Absolutely not. But there were signs and I probably ignored them. And so there's the mix of uh, my brain where I'm still the former scientist and MD, where I wanted to look for data. Where, where... And then there's the other part where, uh, I don't know, uh, you brought this up, but where I'm the paramedic driving the ambulance and it doesn't matter. You just have to get there and help. And so, so I think that there needs to be a, a good balance of both of these things. No one ever said this to me. Um, I was rather raised in a way, you know, um, think about basically what you do twice and then do it right. That, that is still true, right? But, but uh, uh, there's a certain uh, part where accuracy doesn't make you a better anymore. And, and quite frankly, um, I don't want to sound sarcastic, but I love analysts who always tell you, this is what you should have done 18 months ago. Yeah, of course. Now it's very clear, right? But we need yeah. to make those decisions before they happen. I love it. That's very profound, Florian. So for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? <laughs> yeah, I, um, I'm on LinkedIn, um, but, but uh, feel free to send me an email if, if you have ideas uh, uh, around what we should be doing, things that I missed out. Uh, if you're if if you're one of those investors that are fully loaded and and really have are thinking about where is the target where we can deploy funding, uh, I might be open to to to, to have a coffee with you. Email is florian at cigino.com. Amazing. Well, hey Florian, thank you so much for being on the Deal Maker Show today. It was amazing being here. Thank you for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.